0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, April the 18th, 2022. It is currently 4.12 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. The word shame The word shame, that's what I want to start with today. I want to start this live broadcast with the word shame. Let's begin with a definition of that word. The word is shame. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Have you ever felt shame? Have you ever felt that humiliation, shame because of something you have done? Now, maybe you are feeling the shame in a private way because no one else knew about the behavior. Then the behavior became public and you feel that humiliation. You feel that distress, you feel that pain your conscien- your consciousness is tormenting you but it's that consciousness that awareness of wrong or foolish behavior that you've engaged in and you have felt shame i'm i'm sure all of us have felt shame in some way shape or form i doubt i i I think probably 99% of the people, there may be a few people who've never felt shame and we could probably get into some possible reasons why, which would probably not be good because here's the one thing I know about all of us. We have all done wrong. We have all failed to live up to pretty much everything whatever standard you, you put there, but we've definitely uh, fallen short of God's standard. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've, fall, we've fallen short of God's law, God's standard. We have, we have hurt people. We have disappointed people. We've let people down. We've engaged in wrong behavior, scandalous behavior, sinful behavior, disgraceful behavior. We've all failed over and over and over again. So we should all be familiar with shame. Shame. Here's the question that is posed in an article that I saw just the other day. All right, are you ready? Now, they don't pose it as a question, they put it as a dogmatic assertion, but I'm going to ask it as a question. Are you ready? Does the church need shame to function? Is the entire function of the church based on shame that without shame, there would be no well, the church wouldn't even know how to function it it needs shame in order to be able to function and is that a good thing or a bad thing? What role does shame play in a church what what what's the role of shame in in someone's Christian life? How significant is shame? Should someone, for example, be publicly shamed for their behavior? How should a church use shame? The article that I have in front of me that was published on April the 15th makes a dogmatic assertion, the church needs shame to function. It needs it. Without it, it can't function. Now, that, that's an interesting claim. They clearly believe that this is not a good thing because this is how, here's the headline, the church needs shame to function. And then right underneath that in smaller print, and that's a shame. It's a shame that the church needs shame in order to function. And then right underneath that headline, there's this larger picture. Here's uh, someone holding a Bible and he's pointing the finger. He's pointing the finger at someone, and you almost feel like the picture is just screaming. Shame! Shame on you, Shame on you. You know what you did, and you should be humiliated by it. You should feel that pain. Is shame an essential part of one's Christian experience, and is shame a very, very needful thing in order for the church to function. Now, this article clearly is going to be against the way the church uses shame. You can tell me whether you agree or disagree with this article's perspective and its conclusion. All right, are you ready? Thinking caps on, here we go. The article begins with this. When you get to die, the preacher explained, and these are in quotes. So I quote, when you get to die, then the article adds, the preacher explained, you'll come face to face. This is the preacher speaking again. You'll come face to face with God, and then you'll have to explain everything you've done. All right, so, so we're, we're, we're given a, a scene here, right? It's like the scene goes dark, right? Like there's the title. The church needs shame to function. Screen goes dark. And then as the screen, oh as the as the the scene comes back into focus, as the the screen goes from dark back to or as the screen goes dark and the scene comes to light, we're sitting inside a church, and there's someone behind the pulpit who's saying, When you get to die, when you die, you're gonna come face to face face with God. And at that point, you're gonna have to explain everything that you've ever done. Now, immediately, your mind probably starts thinking, whoa, if if I have to explain everything I've ever done to God, there's a lot of things I have to explain. There may be things I have to explain that nobody even knows about. Maybe you start feeling that pain of shame, that how humiliating that would be. They go on to say, again, this is supposedly the preacher standing behind the pulpit. So the preacher says, when you get to die, you'll come face to face with God, and then you'll have to explain everything you've done. And then the preacher continues, I can imagine that there will be a big screen where your entire life will be replayed. Every word, every thought, every action, everything done in secret will be laid bare for everyone to see. I've heard sermons. Like this, back when I was a teenager. And all you can imagine is everything, and everyone's going to see it. Wow. That's shame. That's humiliating. That's fearful. That's horrific. That's horrible. Now, the author of this article. So he records basically this scene of being inside a church, listening to this preacher say, Hey, you're going to have to explain everything. And, and everything that you've ever done is going to be shown on a screen for everyone to see, no matter what it was, every thought, every word, every action, everything done in secret, it's going to be made plain. The author says, I was a teenager, one of several hundred sitting And another Christian youth rally, listening intently to the good news of the gospel as declared by the evangelical tradition, the preacher man went on. Now, this is supposedly you're hearing the good news, okay? So obviously, they're going to get to the good news, but obviously, the bad news is when you die, you're going to face God, and everything you've ever done is going to be shown to everyone, and I can think as a teenager, you're just like, oh, man, the things I've done, the things I've thought, oh, wow. This this is horrible but the preacher continues I quote you and I both know that there are things that you have done that you are ashamed of you would die of embarrassment if everyone got to see all the wrong things you have done end quote Now clearly this preacher is using this concept of shame using the prospect of the, of public humiliation, using this concept to, to scare you to death, that the last thing you want is to stand before God and everyone see everything you've ever done. You wouldn't want that to happen in a church with five people, much less, um, and standing in front of God, I guess in front of all of humanity. You don't ever want this. I mean, this is a horrible, frightening concept in anyone's mind. Back to the the author writes this. My best mate, sitting next to me, shuffled uncomfortably in a seat. Yeah, I bet you all the teenagers were shuffling uncomfortably because this thought would be horrifying, would be humiliating, would be shameful. Maybe he was thinking what I was thinking. The preacher cast his gaze from one side of the room to the other as if eyeballing each and every one of us individually. Then he paused for effect as if he was waiting for some desperate soul to cry out, tell us the answer. There must be an answer. And there was. Now stop right here. Describing the preacher using, you know, what you're taught to do in in a speech class. You look at everyone. But here's a tense moment. He's just told everyone you're going to die and stand before God and everything you've ever done is going to be made public. And then he looks at everyone, right? Which gives you that feeling that, Man, this man, may. does this man know the things that I've done? This is very manipulative, right? This is very manipulative, and this is one of these, he's describing one of these youth rallies, or you could probably put this in the context of a church camp, and if you do not know my philosophy on church camps, I literally loathe and despise them. Uh, I've never sent any young people to a church camp, nor would I ever, because I believe church camps are the very, Seed the very headquarters of manipulation, all right? Here's how I think church camp works. You isolate, separate young people from any of their outside influences. Many church camps will say you can't have your phone, whatever. You cut them off from all outside, you know, so you isolate. Then you indoctrinate and then you manipulate right in fact you use it so you indoctrinate with your teaching and then you use manipulation te- techniques you've already isolated them right you're indoctrinating them and now you manipulate them with emotional with emotional techniques and you get them to cry you get them to this and then then finally they're done they're sent back home and then within 2 or 3 weeks now the emotional manipulation begins to give away and and so now they 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 they, they showed up thinking one way Within three weeks, all of the emotions are gone, and they end up feeling foolish and stupid. I think it's a horrible, horrible thing. I, I can't stand the way they work. I, I can't, I can't stand them. Now, you can say, "Well, I went to a church camp, and it wasn't like that." Well, congratulations. But I, th- I feel most are. So I'm just the concept to me is just crazy, just crazy, right? And then, and then you have churches where the kids have to raise money for church camp, and they do a car wash, and they sell candy bars. It's like, what? where. That's nowhere in the Bible. The Bi- that's, that's not even like, oh, don't even get me started on the whole thing. But here, they're going through all of this. So, this preacher sets up this emotional setting where he's using shame and the fear of being exposed. That's his, that's his manipula- manipulative technique. And he's now going to provide an answer to this possible t- facing great humiliation and shame. And the preacher man was going to wait to be asked for it with full, and the preacher man wasn't going to wait to be asked for, well, so what's the answer? What do we do? With full evangelistic fervor, he explained that surrendering your life to Jesus will set you free from all your guilt and shame. When God turns to you, presumably after watching your whole life on the big screen and ask you to explain yourself, Jesus will step in on your behalf and explain to God how all the horrible things you've done are forgiven because you have put your trust in him. Finally, the preacher gave his ultimatum. A ultimatum. You will either accept Jesus now or be left co- to confront God in your miserable wretchedness all by yourself later. All right, so here's... Here. this just from a logical point begins to fall apart in my mind, but all right, here's the way it works. So no matter what you do, it sounds like all of your dirt is going to be exposed to everyone. The only good news is after your dirt is exposed to everyone and you face this horrible humiliation, Jesus is going to step in and say, hey, I, 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 because of my death, it's all forgiven. It's good to go. So if you come to Jesus, it will all be forgiven then. You're still going to have to go through the public humiliation. So I don't really know how that helps you <laughs> escape it because you're still going to have to face it. But I, I also find it interesting. Well, well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later at an appropriate time. So I, I don't know how this is supposedly supposed to help. But that but the, the author of this article says, at that moment, I chose Jesus. So the idea is, You've done bad things. You you should be humiliated about You're going to be humiliated. The only way to have those things forgiven is through Jesus. So, okay. I kind of understand this, but it's very manipulative, very manipulative. And you come to, basically you're coming to Jesus because you don't want to be embarrassed. Now, in a roundabout way, though, the way he set up this imaginary scenario Uh, you're still going to be humiliated. The only good news is Jesus is going to step in for you. He's going to step in and say, okay, okay, it's all forgiven. Uh, But you're not really escaping the humiliation. But the humiliation is the the emotional manipulation to get you to say, I choose Jesus. All right? (laughs) Okay, I I don't remember the verse. Was it on a projector or an OLED big screen? Okay, yeah, well, good point. All right, but uh, so here, here's the uh, here's this whole thing. But let let's just see what they do with this. All right. So this the the author of this article says I I chose Jesus. So did several hundred others in the room. What else could we have done? If a bullet is coming at your head. You duck and dodge the bullet, right? I mean, basically, you're put in a situation where, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. Here's the gun; it's loaded, and I'm getting, and the bullet, and the the going to be pulled, and that bullet's coming right at you. Well, I'll, what do you? Well, what what's the way out? Well, okay, I'll, I'll, whatever I got to do to to dodge that bullet. It's about dodging the bullet. So this person says, or the author for the article says this: far too many years later. I realized that my conversion to Christianity had been something done under duress. I was pressured. I was shamed. I was emotionally manipulated. I was presented with a horrible choice, and I chose the path that I thought would deliver me from the nightmarish scenario presented to me from the pulpit time and time again. When I started following Jesus, I did it to avoid the consequences of not following Jesus. I did not love Jesus. I was not compelled to follow him by reading about his exemplary life through the Gospels. I was simply following Jesus to avoid punishment, to escape the flames, and to avoid the kind of public humiliation that might make one wish to vanish into thin air. I arrived at a troubling conclusion. The church's primary weapon To achieve as many of its goals is shame. I want you to hear that. According to this author, what he concluded after going through what he labels basically a false conversion, it was a false conversion. I wasn't following Jesus other than anything. I don't want to have to go through this horrible scenario where my life is going to be flashed on a big screen for everyone to see, and I'm not going to have any answer. Jesus at least will, will at least say I'm forgiven. Okay, I don't... but. I mean, the whole thing is manipulation. But his his conclusion is the church's primary weapon, I think we could use it this way, the church's primary tool to achieve many of its goals is shame. I think back over the years that I was just part of the evangelical church and I saw it time and time again, experienced it myself And thought, it pains me to admit, I participated in the shaming of others. It was the culture in which I was raised. Then, right underneath that, here's a picture of a person. His hands are down by his side. His head is dropped. And there's all... Of these arms uh, surrounding him, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve arms sticking out, and all you can see is their fingers, and they're all pointing at the individual. Basically, shame, shame, shame. And this uh, this author is saying this is what the church uses to accomplish its goal. It has to shame people, shame, shame. The threat of shame, the threat of humiliation. They go on to say, the author, the church is full of lovely people beholden to a broken system, a, guilt be- a guilt-based religious structure that ultimately keeps people enslaved. Here is a snapshot of the various ways that I've observed the use of shame and shaming in the church. All right, now, you already may be saying, well, wait, 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 wait. I understand you may already have a 100 answers. I just want to hear this perspective. And, And they're saying, he's going to outline the different ways that he saw the church use shame. So I just want you to think about your experience within Christianity. How was shame used against you? Shame, 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 shame. I mean, it constantly goes, well, if you do that, you're probably not even a Christian. If you do that, you're probably not saved. I mean, the church loves to to basically say, well, you're not really a Christian, you're not this, you're not that, you're horrible, you're horrible. I mean, there's a lot of shame being used. Now, listen, at the same time, I want to just go ahead and throw this in. Clearly, we have to admit, whatever this author of this article, his conclusion, it, it possibly may not even claim to be a Christian anymore, I can't say for sure, but... Let's just make it clear. The Bible would still say that there are things that we do that is condemned and is called sin, and we are to feel some guilt and shame for that. So there, there this is one of those things, it, it can't be, you know, either or. In other words, it can't just be like it's one or the other. Sometimes that there's a medium, a balance here, sometimes we're like, well, the church has misused shame, so throw out shame completely. That's... That's not a good way to approach it. I think we have to acknowledge the Bible does condemn certain actions and behaviors as being sinful. There's no question about it. But how should shame be used by a church, by you, by me, as a parent? Let's see what they have to say. Here are some ways which the church uses shame, according to this author. Number one. Shame is used to convince people that they need to accept Jesus in the first instance. I want to say that my conversion story was an accept, was I w- I want to say that my conversion story was an exception to the common narrative, but sadly it's not. The threat of hell was the sales pitch that was used to get many to sign on the dotted line when it comes to following Christ. Vivid images of having your worst sins exposed for all the world to see are all too typical. Right? Uh, uh, he quotes an article here on the scientific effects of shame. Uh, And this article points out that adolescents are more susceptible to the harmful effects of shame than fully grown adults. It makes me wonder if the whole your life will be played back on the big screen illustration was actually used by design to achieve a particular result or elicit a certain response in teenagers. Adolescents do not want to experience any kind of shame or embarrassment. They do not. They do not. That's why they conform. That's why they cave into peer pressure because they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be humiliated. They don't want to be embarrassed. That's why they don't want you like, Hey, don't drop me off six miles away from the school. I would rather walk six miles in a hurricane than you drop me off at school. Wait, are we going to drop me off in this car? Wait, I got to wear these clothes. Wait, look at my hair. They, because it, they don't want to be embarrassed. They want to fit in. They want to fit in. They want to fit. They don't want to be humiliated. So, did someone design an evangelistic appeal that goes after the fear of an adolescence about being humiliated and shamed? Well, that is fleshly evangelism that just is relying on human emotional manipulation, which I completely reject that stuff, and sadly, it's used way too much in the church. But at the same time, There's no denying that the Bible would say, you are a sinner, and as a result of your sin, you will spend an eternity separated from a holy God unless you receive the forgiveness provided by God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross. So there is, you see, you can't just throw one completely out, but I think the church sometimes uses shame in a very manipulative way to try to get someone to simply say a prayer. I think, I think that, that this, this comes down to, and we could get into a whole discussion here about Pelagianism, Semipelagianism semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism believes, again, that man is not totally depraved and that man's will is truly free. So then it almost leads to, well, I can, I can do anything to manipulate their will. As long as I can manipulate their will and they will say a prayer, then boom, they're saved. But you're just you're just manipulating someone. And if you truly believe their will is free, why would you try to manipulate it? Just present the facts if you believe in complete free will. If you believe in a libertarian free will, then just don't manipulate their will. Because then, I mean, if you're trying to manipulate their will, you're not respecting their free will. Just present to them, you are a sinner. There is a God. There will be a judgment. And salvation is found in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't, why would you be using manipulative techniques, sales text techniques, psychological techniques? Why would you do that nonsense? I remember as a Christian teenager being told on certain services, hey, if you'll just come forward and pray. That may, other people who may be afraid to come forward, they, they'll, if one person will come forward, that kind of gets this feeling that they can come forward too. And I'm like, so we're, we're using tricks and manipulation to give them a psychological feeling of, like the whole thing just seemed shady and corrupt. And it was shady and corrupt. When I, when I was being taken to different churches as a teenager to give my testimony, I was literally being told when to cry. This is a good, good part to cry. Right here, so you're you're structuring this so that you can get the most emotional impact from my abusive past. Hmm, that sounds like I, I was I was simply used as a tool, well, to get people to come forward. Now, and one thing, uh, one, in one part of my mind, I was like, okay, but I'm 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 doing this to to bring people to Christ, but in real roundabout way, I think I was just being manipulated to get people to come forward so the church felt that it was succeeding some goal because I don't know, just because someone comes forward does not mean conversion has taken place. But there's a lot of manipulation here. And if shame, according to this scientific article and this scientific study, shows that uh, the scientific effects of shame points out that adolescents are more susceptible to the harmful effects of shame. Adolescents are, are, are sensitive to it. Either way... Either way, a person will only follow another out of fear for so long before deciding to break free from their puritanical regime. And it's true. You can only you can only hold somebody with fear and shame for so long, and sooner or later, they're going to grow up, and they're going to be like, I don't care about your fear. I don't care about your shame. I don't care about this Jesus stuff. So you only get a temporary... Sense of oh look at how many teenagers got saved. No, look at how many teenagers got emotionally manipulated and emotionally basically abused because the church was using shame to really almost harm them. Love, on the other hand, compels a person to follow indefinitely. The problem is that love takes longer to reap a harvest than fear, and the church has never been known for its patience. So, like, the reason the church goes with fear and shame is you get those immediate results. Love the love for God and love that takes time and the church is not known for its time because it wants results and it wants them right now. We need that growth right now. We need more baptisms this year right now. We need more confessions of faith right now. We need more people in Sunday school right now. We need a bigger building right now. We need more money right now. So then you use whatever techniques you come up with, which just turns the whole church into a mess and I, I, I think some of these things have to be called out. So, so they use shame to basically try to create converts. Number two, shame is used in the church to make people conform to the norms of the group. Belief in any system is a social exercise. Nowhere is this more evident than in the evangelical church. If you want to fit in, there are a bunch of so-called not negotiable truths that you must ascribe to. Many of them are extra biblical and have more to do with tradition and dogma than actual practice of following Christ. And that is very true. There is shame put on you. Hey, you conform or be cast out, to quote uh, the band Rush, okay, now oh, oh, I'm quoting a secular band, okay, but... It, it, it's very much like this. You conform, or you begin, and shame is put on there. Oh, I, oh man, I went through this, man. I went, I went through this all day long in my early Christian life. Secular music, bad. shame, shame on you. You cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and listen to foreigner. I know that's dating me, okay, but I could quote modern music, but okay, but just at the time, you know, you can't, You can't be a Christian and listen to this. You can't be a Christian and do this. You can't be a Christian and watch that kind of movie. You can't be a Christian and dance. You can't be a you can't be a you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian. And it was always like all of these like just all of these extra things. And then then the next thing you know, you know you're gonna be a you want to be a preacher. You gotta wear a tie. You gotta wear a tie. If you don't wear a tie, then you're some fleshly evil monster. So you got to wear a tie and you can't have a beard and you can't do this and you can't do that. You can't do this and you can't do that. You can't go to the movie theater and you can't play cards, and you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, can't. And it was all these rules. And if you did not do these rules, not only was your Christianity called into question, your spirituality was called into question. And there was a little bit of shame, shame. Shame. I've experienced a lot of this. And again, I think in many cases, the, the, a lot of the rules are just, they're, they're, many of them are extra biblical. They really, there's nothing specifically in scripture about some of these issues. Now, I'm not saying you can't have a discussion about them, but it's just like, here's the way it is. It's like right now, if you if you don't come out with guns drawn, ready to rush Disney, And I'm not saying, obviously, that that Christians are calling for physical violence against Disney. I'm saying metaphorically. If you're not, if you don't come out with hatred and condemnation of Disney, well, then people are just like, well, done with you, done with you, because you better agree with me about Disney. You know, literally, so now I have to conform to your dislike of Disney, and I I have maybe a different perspective that I really don't care what Disney does. There's... 5,000 things on Disney plus I'll watch what I want and won't watch what I don't want. And I really don't care what they do because I don't expect them to be putting forth a Christian worldview because they're not a church. I, I mean, is that, is that so shocking? Is that so, but you conform. And if you don't, then you're, you're ungodly. You're ungodly. And it's always an attack upon your godliness. It's always an attack upon your Christianity. It's always an attack upon your faithfulness. It's always an, you're not a part of the club. Shame is used. Either way, a person will only follow another. Okay, I'm sorry, sorry. let's continue. Um, So, many of them are extra-biblical and have more to do with tradition and dogma than actual following Christ. You will quickly find yourself frozen out if you begin to question certain things. Like, now, now here, I understand. Now, this person clearly has has a completely different view, but I'm going to read what they have to say. You will quickly find yourself frozen out if you begin to question certain things like scriptures and errancy, for example. Now, okay. Now, wait a minute. See, this is one of those things where you may have some good points or you go a, a, a step too far. Look, whenever you, this, this, we, we just have to accept this. The Bible condemns behavior, and that behavior is sinful. That's going to cr- cause some level of shame. We all have to acknowledge that. You can't just throw out all concept of shame within Christianity because you're throwing out Christianity. All right, But there's, there's abuses of it, as we've mentioned. The Bible would call for certain doctrinal beliefs that would make you either define something as being a Christian or no longer being Christian would be considered apostate or false doctrine. 2,000 years of church history, It has shown that. So, yes, I do understand if someone throws out the inerrancy of scripture, yeah, they quote unquote may, as they say, um, you may be frozen out. Well, you're you're, you're in a sense leaving orthodox, historical, biblical Christianity. So, yeah, there's going to be those issues that show up. They go on to say, for example, don't talk too loudly about how you support gay marriage and, and mention that you do not believe in a literal seven day creation narrative at your own peril. Anyone on the liberal end of the spectrum is treated as an object of suspicion. Now, look, I understand there's certain issues. Put it this way. This is what I would say. The church misuses shame when someone expresses questions. If someone expresses questions, doubts, and struggle, they're immediately hit with, boom, shame and condemnation. That's wrong. At the same time, the church can and must maintain this is biblical theology that isn't. So there's going to be some shame or some sense of "quote unquote" you're being frozen out. The, the church has been doing that all the way back to you can go. We can go back to the Council of Jerusalem, but you can go to, clearly to the seven ecumenical councils. This is truth. That is falsehood. And if you believe that, you are anathema. So the Bible condemns those who would bring a false gospel. So. Clearly, now the the thing is, it's got to be biblical things and not these secondary things that we add to it. See, there's got to be a balance here. This article is going from is condemning the misuse of shame, and then maybe going to a radical a radical perspective, which then almost makes no shame and you cannot condemn anything. All right, they go on here when it comes to free thinking. There is very little room to move in the evangelical church. People who hold to views that deviate from what is considered orthodox are most certainly shamed, both behind their backs on the gossip circuit and from the pulpit when the alarm pastor seeks to correct your wicked heresy before it takes root and leads others astray. You can sense the concern in your well-meaning Christian friends when you express your doubts and difficult questions. Most of us care so much about belonging that we suppress and bury those uneasy feelings for the sake of fitting in. After all, we have, we have seen what happens to people who refuse to conform. They always end up on the outer. Now, again, this is where we have to have balance. The church should be willing to handle and accept struggle, questions, doubts, Frustration, discouragement, maybe anger, trying to figure out things. Sometimes this is going from like, there can be no, it's almost they're arguing, there can be no standard at all. No doctrinal standard, no no moral standard, and that's not biblical. But on the other hand, some it's like, here's this... Here's what you must conform to, and there can be no deviation. In many cases, they're making you conform to that which is not even necessarily biblical. It's extra biblical. It's the traditions of men. And we saw Jesus did not follow the traditions of men. He turned on the traditions of men. Now, here's another way the church uh, uses shame. Shame is used in the church to make people open their wallets and give. And a system where the church spends around 75% of their income on paying the pastor's wage and maintaining the church building, money really does make the world go round. If I had a dollar for every time I've been guilted into giving more money to the church, I would have have a considerable amount of money to give to the church. The ancient Old Testament pra- practice of tithing, giving away a tenth of your income, has found its home in its modern Christian churches, even though much of the rest of the Old Testament has been dispensed with. Moreover, the biblical command to tithe is taken to literally mean you ought to be giving your money to the institutionalized church. What is even more abhorrent than 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 this is the suggestion that your financial giving is somehow linked to the blessings of God. The more you give, the more God will bless you, some churches will assert. In fact, your monetary gifts are capable of unlocking the blessings of God. They say commonly known as the prosperity gospel, this mindset insinuates that God can somehow be bought off and that the blessing of God is somehow for sale, which is appalling. Consequently, the church, the church has at times suggested that if your life is not going according to plan, perhaps you're not giving enough of your cash. Either way, the message presented to the church is clear. Good Christians give their money to the church, bad Christians do not. Now, I agree that shame has been used in that way. Shame has been used that way. How much money are you giving? How much money are you giving? But at the same time, see, here's here's the, the balance. Churches don't stay open without money. Now, you can talk about what churches spend their money on. We we could have that discussion all day, right? You, you, I've got no problem calling that into... See, I think in many cases there there should be some difficult questions raised. But at the same time, you can't just say, well, you know what? No one feel bad about not giving anything. And, you know, the pastor, uh, well, can't take care of his family. The pastor has to have three jobs. The church can't have any kind of ministry or barely can keep on the electricity. Well, every, I mean, it, you see, there's a balance there, right? I know it's easy to criticize the church and money. I, I know it's easy to do that. It's it, The church has made itself a target for criticisms about money because how church has mishandled money. But just remember, no money, no church. It's just you you can you can hate that all day long, but you no online ministry without money. No, no on no online ministry with yesterday was the day where I get all of the receipts for all of the things that we pay for. It was a hundred dollars for Spreaker, um I can't twenty dollars I think for SoundCloud, uh $15 for our pod pay. It was like, oh, boom, boom. I kept getting the emails. And it just shows you these. these are all the things that just to be able to do what I'm doing right now. Forget, you know, having a church building and everything else. It requires money. So I understand that it's easy to say, well, the church uses shame. The church should never use shame in order to get money. I do agree with that. That is wrong. I don't think the church should ever make the preaching and teaching of God's word a product, which they sell, and you have to pay for in order to get the rest of the podcast or to get into a conference to hear the preaching or whatever. I think that's wrong. So there, there's, see, there's, there's trying to find balance here, but the church does use shame sometimes to get money. Shame is used in the church to make people participate, attend, and serve. As a Christian who does not attend a mainstream traditional church, preferring instead to practice my faith simply and free from the institution, I've experienced firsthand the kind of shaming that is dispensed at the hands of good, Bible-believing, church-attending Christians towards those who choose not to attend, participate, and serve in a traditional church setting. When I bump into friends from my past life, a life of church attending, I'm commonly asked where I'm going to church these days when I polite When I reply that I'm not part of a congregation anymore, I will usually met with a mix of pity and concern uh, and just a hint of indignation. Well, I'll be praying for you is the common conclusion to these kinds of conversations as if I were somehow a lost pagan. In reality, since leaving the church, my faith has found new life. No longer is my life hyper-scheduled with prayer meetings, potluck suppers, and Bible studies, largely at the expense of God's command to observe the Sabbath and have a rest. I am no longer made to feel bad for spending Saturday with my family instead of going to church, to the church, uh, going to the church working Be all right? So now again, he's thrown out church. And a part of it, because he hates how church uses shame. And he talks about, yes, shame is used in many cases to get people to attend. It is used that way. And I can understand many times it's used that way by pastors because of just our frustration. As a pastor, you you spend all of your time preparing your sermon. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You're supposed to be sitting there at 10 a.m. ready to go because that's your job, right? Whether you're getting a salary or not getting a salary, whether you're bivocational, doesn't, matter what, doesn't even matter what you're getting. You're expected to be there at 10 a.m. ready to go, no matter what's going in your life. Feel bad, doesn't matter, especially a small church. It's not like you can just call in a replacement. You have to be there, and then nobody shows up, and then you get a little frustrated, and so sometimes you will may want to just use a little bit of shaming people to get people there. I've been guilty of it. Every pastor. Sunday school teachers have been guilty of it. So, but Now, there's a time or rebuke and correction, because the Bible calls us to do that. But when is it an appropriate use, and when is it an inappropriate use? Right? When, when is it appropriate? Or 42 minutes. Let's go on to the next thing they have here. It is a great irony that the church preaches a message that says, come to God as you are and receive full acceptance. While at the same time promoting a performance based religious system with obvious boundary markers about what is and not acceptable behavior. Now, I I think there, this is, I think this is, gets to a very important point. It is true that Christianity in a way says, all right, you are a sinner. You are a horrible sinner. Come to Christ. It is free. His grace is free. His mercy is free. Come to him and receive forgiveness. And everything you've done is be completely forgiven. It is completely removed from you. It's, it's thrown into the deepest ocean. It's moved as far as the east is from the west. Come to Christ. And then you come to Christ and you're like, man, this is amazing. I am forgiven. And then you become a Christian. And then it's like, however you better not do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Because if you do that, 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 then that, you may be forgiven, but there's going to be consequences. It's like the gospel is great. Like before you're saved, the gospel is wonderful. You come to Jesus and it's all forgiven. It's all great. You start over. Everything's great. But after you become a Christian, Hey, hey, hey now, we judge on a performance-based uh system around here and if you do this this and this, we're, we're not so the gospel is not so no no longer for you. I mean, the gospel will forgive you, but now there's consequences. Now now something's going to have to happen. And it's weird how the gospel is preached one way for the lost, but the gospel is not preached the same for the saved. Now, that's my own Adding this to this discussion. I don't know where, which direction the article is going to go, but that's what I want to add to this discussion. Here's what they have to say. It is a great irony that the church preaches a message that says, come to God as you are and receive full acceptance, full forgiveness. It's it's full. It's, it's wonderful. But at the same time, they promote a performance-based religious system with obvious boundary markers about what is and is not acceptable behavior. How many of the sermons you hear in your average church when you boil them down and are down are simply a message of condemnation? You're doing it wrong. Get better, do better, do this more, do this less, and so on. Now, I I think that's an important. How many sermons, when you boil them down, that's what they become? You're doing it wrong. Do this. Stop doing that. Do more of this. Do less of that. How many sermons, when you boil them down, that's what they become? Look, in some cases, you have to do that because sometimes the text seems to demand that. So again, this he's doing the either-or thing, which I, I think typically you fall into logical fallacies here. Sometimes the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's right there in the middle. And I think that there are times where the scripture, if you listen to my Sunday school lesson, some people may say, man, you were really harsh, and maybe you used a little bit of shame. Because, yeah, to me, when I read Jude, and Jude is writing to people saying, you, you have to contend for the faith. You, the average person, the average Christian, you have to contend for the faith. It makes me feel like, well, why the bo- why bother preaching Jude when the average Christian is not going to do what would be required to actually contend for the faith? So then it's like, so what are we doing? Are we playing a game? Hey, we're going to preach a book about contending for the faith. Now, what would be required to contend for the faith? Well, you're going to have to know what the faith is. Well, as from a Protestant perspective, we're going to argue about the faith using scripture alone. So you're going to have to know scripture and you're going to have to know how to interpret it. So you've got to know some kind of hermeneutics. Well, then the average Christian won't do even half the things required to actually be able to contend for the faith. So why read a book? Why study a book about, con- about teaching you how to contend for the faith if no one's going to do what's required to contend for the faith? Now that's a little bit of you need to do this, you need to do less of this. So I I, I just preached a sermon in a sense, j- just Sunday morning that was very much like that. It's easy to do that, but I wonder when I, we have to at least question when that's acceptable, when it's not acceptable. And I, I, here's what I think: sometimes we have to question. How much we present a law-based message, do, do, do this, and we forget to present the fact that it's been done by Christ. At the same time, we have to challenge people to do things. But I, I think sometimes, here's what I would say. I think so much of preaching Is about making it practical that it almost always is going to, that when the sermon is over, it's always going to turn into do this, do less of this, do more of this. I think the reason is because as preachers, we're always told we got to make that sermon practical. And I think what we need to do when the text says do this, don't do this, we need to preach that. But what we should do is just focus on preaching the text more than just trying to focus on making it practical. I, I, I think maybe there's something to that. But okay. So. The point they want to use in this article is that shame is used to manage behavior. All right. Uh, They go on to say, I cannot believe that I sat through so many sermons where I was told what I needed to do to improve myself, wherein all my very human actions, emotions, and reactions were painted as shameful to God. That's true. On one hand, you're like, hey, you've got to improve yourself. And then the next minute, you're being told that basically all of your actions, all of your emotions, and all of your reactions are shameful to God. Well okay well it, it, how, how do we how do we find the balance there? Hey you got to improve yourself. Amen. But everything you do is wrong before God. Okay, it doesn't sound like I'm going to be able to improve myself very much here. Hey, do better. But everything you do is garbage. <laughs> okay, it's like, hey, do better. But every but the more you try, the more garbage it becomes. It's like, what, what, what's the answer there? Christianity is supposed to be a life-transforming faith, but it has been reduced to a sin-management program in many churches, where there are very clear guidelines about what a good Christian about what a good Christian is and does. The result is quite the opposite of gospel's intent. With many believing that they don't measure up, they aren't good enough for God and never will be. I I do agree that a good portion of Christianity today is nothing more than a sin management program. And the sin management program is just don't do these sins because there's a lot of sins in the church's sin management program that are okay. You're not gonna get church disciplined. You're gonna be okay. You're not gonna be publicly shamed. But these sins, not only are you going to get publicly shamed, there's going to be consequences. You may be removed and you can never do this again or this again. And, and, and sometimes it's just a never-ending spiral of, of behavioral management where shame is the number one factor in fearing people and doing it. I mean, we saw this with the John MacArthur story. Here's a woman who's not going to stay with her abusive husband and the next thing she she's being publicly shamed publicly shamed, publicly humiliated. Now, whatever you agree or disagree, and, I, and again, the Bible at the same time speaks of church discipline. So see, you can't just throw out church discipline completely, but in that particular case, you're like, well, wait a minute, is this the right way to go about this? Is this the right way to do it? Again, we could, we could have a long discussion about it. When is it right? When is it wrong? But I do believe the church gets reduced to a sin management program instead of a gospel, a gospel community becomes a sin management community. Look, don't look for me for answers here, okay? I'm just trying to get us to think about it. Because I, look, I've been in Christianity long enough to know how frequently shame is used. I've used it. It's been used against me. Sometimes I think maybe appropriately, sometimes I think maybe inappropriately. Guilt-based religion and shame work well to keep the troops in line because shame certainly is a powerful motivator, but only in the short term. It does not result in real lasting transformation. In the long term, it produces somewhat different results. A system that uses shame to achieve its goals ultimately makes out God to be the, to be the same. Unwittingly, the church made God seem like an arm-folding, eye-rolling, head-shaking, fist-waving, disapproving megalomaniac who is impossible to please and constantly unimpressed. Moreover, the church made it seem like God, with a heavy, heavy sigh, begrudgingly came and died for our sins, and we ought to feel constantly guilty about making him die in the first place. Consequently, the God the church presents seems to struggle to show unconditional love or mercy to sinners, even though according to Jesus, it is in God's very job description. Now it is true. It's almost like God's like, okay, well, I've got, to, I've got to send Jesus, but I don't really want to do this. And instead of a God that's, as they say, a God that shows unconditional love or mercy, it, it I, I, it's weird. I think sometimes for the sinner who's not saved, we do say God will give you unconditional love and mercy. But once you become saved, that unconditional love and mercy becomes very conditional. And it's like, well, you may be forgiven, but there's always a but and a however. In fact, under the message that most of us have heard, we end up being more loving than God and then not taking God very seriously. When I think about my non-Christian friends, ordinary people, I know they would usually give a guy a break or overlook someone's mistakes, even on their worst days, would not imagine torturing people who do not like them, worship them, or believe in them. Yet that—that that is how the God that the church presents appears to be. He ends up looking rather petty, needy, narcissistic, and easily offended. Now again, they go a little too far, right? See, this is, the, this is trying to find that balance. At the same time, we were, God is offended by our sin. God does hate our sin. So we can't just minimize that because it makes God look bad, right? We can't compare, well, well, my lost friends are willing to just say, well, people make mistakes. Okay, I understand God doesn't just say, well, people make mistakes. But at the same time, we can say God hates sin. God is not happy with sin. And yes, we should feel guilt and shame in front of that God, but that God will absolutely 100% forgive completely, even for those who are believers in sin. Again, sometimes we only give this unconditional forgiveness to the lost, not to the believer. And then we're like, well, that person messed up. That's it. That's it. That's it. it. They can't do that. They're done. They're done. They're done. And and many times Christians, when Christians fall, they don't come running to Christians with, Mercy, grace, love, they come running with gossip, slander, finger pointing, and condemnation. The church seems to be very bad at bringing the gospel to fellow Christians who sin. We want to bring the condemnation and the judgment, not the medicine of the gospel. We don't, we don't, it's almost like we don't care about restoring, we want them removed and condemned. In the church, we are told that we ought to love unconditionally, but God who commends this is depicted as having very conditional and quite exclusive love himself. We are told to love our enemies, but it seems God clearly does not. Why would anyone trust or love such a God who, who, who and want to follow him, much less spend eternity with such a being? And it says, I wouldn't. And then they got this one more. Well, they got a couple more paragraphs. I just want to read one more. And every sense, it feels like in a church, you cannot be both fully known and fully loved. For to be fully known would be to be rejected based on the invisible and unspoken expectations placed on Christians by the church that everyone is and in fact struggling to meet. I want you to hear this again. The... the I'm not going to even read all of this because I, this to me is where this all comes down to this with we take it this long winding road about shame in the church. I want you to hear this. This is to me some some powerful stuff here. In every sense it feels like in a church you cannot be both fully known and fully loved. For to be fully known would to be rejected based on the invisible and unspoken expectations placed on Christians by the church that everyone is, in fact, struggling to meet. The church says, this is what you're supposed to be, and we're all struggling to meet it. So we all have to pretend that we are meeting it. And once someone is exposed as not meeting it, We don't run to that person with love, mercy, and a sense, you know, first aid kit, battle, you know, battlefield medicine to, to, to do, to, to help the person. We're like, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? I can't believe it. They're probably not even a Christian and they should never be able to speak the name of Jesus ever again. And then people just want to get the dirt and then they never want to speak to you again. They tell you on the phone that they'll help you and then they never will speak to you again. Yeah, fully known and fully loved is hard to find. Fully known and fully loved is hard to find in your own family, much less the church. Now, let me make it very clear. Make, Make it very clear. Let me make it very clear. Clearly, it's not easy because we're all sinners. But because we're all sinners, I don't know why the church has such a hard time when someone sins. Hey, we're all sinners, and I, yeah, and I, I'm going to say part of the problem. I'm going to go back to it. You know where I'm going to go because I condemn this every time I get the chance. It's this never-ending teaching that when you become a Christian, that in your practice, in your life, you become a new creature, old things have passed away, and all things have become new. So then the church demands that everyone acts like that. Well, the problem is we don't become fully no, fully new in our practical life because we still possess a sinful nature. So we haven't become completely new. We're, the old is still present. and my position, I've become fully new. So because we believe this, then we have to act like, well, we, we, we stop sinning and then, but sin still shows up within the congregation and nobody knows how to act. So we all, we can't be fully known because we all have to be pretending that we are new creatures in practice when, instead of acknowledging that we're not new creatures in practice, we're new creatures in our position and our practice, we're still sinners. And every sense it feels like in a church, you cannot be both fully known and fully loved for to be fully known would be to be rejected based on the invisible and unspoken expectations placed on Christians by the church that everyone is in fact struggling to meet. This perpetuates the very problem that harkened back to the garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell, felt that they had, okay, this, this perpetuates the problem that harkens back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve felt they had to hide their nakedness from God. They believed that if God saw them fully, he would reject them outright. As a result, many who attend church pick up their fig leaves and cover their own shame and sense of not measuring up. Christians are forced to pretend, repress, deny, or become hypocrites because nothing they will do will ever be good enough. It is not so much that hypocrites join churches, but that the evangelical church's structure encourages people to act and pretend. The church creates the system where you have to be a hypocrite in order to be able to be there. Because you can't be too open and too honest because we're the good people. We're the new creatures. We're all the sin is not here. It's out there. Those bad people out there. In here, where is all the good people. At some point, many Christians finally fed up with the sheer level of energy it takes to play this game, give up and leave the church for good often these are people of real inner integrity and spiritual intelligence who refuse to deny repress or pretend any longer in a cruel twist. They are treated as backslidden fallen and unfaithful Christians by those who remain inside the system. What a tragic irony. Now there's, there's more to the article, not much more, um, you can probably do a search online for The Church Needs Shame to Function. Uh, it's by Dan, Dan Foster. I read all of his, I, I try to read all of his articles. Uh, he, he, all of his articles are published at medium.com. The only problem is there's a subscription. Um, I don't pay the subscription. You get like one or two free articles a day. Um, I, I, sometimes I want to pay for it, but then I'm not because, well, I've got other things to do. But I don't agree. Look, he's left the church. He still claims to be a Christian. Obviously theologically we wouldn't agree on anything. I don't know obviously where he actually stands before God. But he, his criticism towards the church to me is welcomed because it makes me force it forces me to see some of the things I've done wrong and see some of my failure but he really challenges the church, that the church is really an institution that creates the structure that demands hypocrisy. It demands that we all go run and put on fig leaves. Not because to hide ourselves from God, but to hide ourselves from each other because we can't be what we are because we all claim that we are now without, basically without sin, which is not true. Now, it doesn't, I don't think that means that we should accept sin and there should never be any sin are any shame or any guilt or any rebuke or any correction because those are necessary i think what i did sunday school is necessary because i think we should all challenge ourselves wait a minute am i supposed to be contending for the faith well if i if i claim that then there's things i should be doing in order to be able to contend for the faith i think there's times for that challenge but we got to be careful that we don't mishandle shame that we don't misuse shame and that we don't create a system that perpetuates Fig leaves. And I'll stop right there. I'm going to go check and make sure I'm not missing any comments. Because I think this is really good stuff. All right. Good. I'm just going to stop there. There's so much. There's about a million more things I could say. But that's some just powerful, 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 powerful stuff. All right. You can email me your thoughts. I hope I've tried to be as balanced here as I can. I don't agree with everything that's in the article because he clearly rejects some things that I don't think we can review. I'm, I tried to take his his view, which I think goes kind of an either or, and I'm trying to find a balance here where shame, but not the wrong way, all right? And, and hopefully that makes sense, all right? You can email me your thoughts about all of this. In the Discord channel, feel free to discuss away. Um, but uh, you can reach me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo dot com, that's newsif at yahoo dot com. All right, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, right. we may do more somewhere this evening. We'll see. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day. God bless.